Welcome to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. May the Word of God be a blessing to you. Connect with us and consider giving online at LifeSpringChurch.us. They both strapped themselves in and sat down and got out their lunch pails. They opened up the lunch pail and took out their Stanley, set it next to them, began to look in the box, and one of them said, Man, not baloney again. Can't believe it. I hate baloney. This is the third time this week I've had baloney. I just can't stand baloney. It's terrible. Partner sitting next to him says, Well, did you ask your wife to make you something different? He replied, I don't have a wife. I make my own sandwich. Change brings the greatest opportunity to those who are willing to let go of what they currently have a grasp of and reach for what is right in front of them. How many times have people missed greatness because they won't let go of goodness? How many times has the status quo become the long result when better is available, but people are just uncomfortable with letting go? Today, I want you to join me for just a few minutes, and we're going to talk about the idea of leaving the old, becoming the new. Leaving the old, becoming the new. The new. There's this document that, as a young person, you don't think much about, but as years begin to flip over on our life odometer, we began to think about it. It's called a will. A will is simply a legal document that declares a person's wishes regarding the disbursement of their assets, their property, or their real estate when they pass away. There's an older term that's used. Actually, if you look at an older document of a will, it says this is the will and testament of so-and-so. A testament is an act by which a person determines the disposition of their property after their death. We know the word testament in church because the Bible has been divided into the Old Testament and into the New Testament. The division between the Old Testament and the New Testament was decided on because of the gap of time between the prophets. There was, I believe it's 400 years of silence between the last prophet that's documented in the Old Testament and then the declaration of the birth of Jesus Christ and the prophecies of John the Baptist. They're called testaments because they're speaking about things that are put into place after death. But really the division of the Old Testament and the New Testament isn't between the last book of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The division of the testaments is when the testator, the grantor, the person who has to die, dies. So the real division between the Old Testament And the New Testament is Calvary. So much of what we read in the Gospels is 
still under the old law. John the Baptist was an Old Testament prophet. He was not a New Testament preacher. This maybe helps us understand a little bit today. I want to challenge us to look at the principles, concepts of the Old Testament versus the New Testament and see if our life and the way that we live for Christ, are we living in Old Testament? And it's kind of a play on words. An Old Testament Christianity or a New Testament Christianity? What challenge us with even saying the word Christianity because I don't know how you could be a Christian and live the Old Testament way because it's not the way of Christ. It's the way of the law. It's the way of rules. It's the way of ritual. But if we are to follow Christ, we would be one who follows the new covenant, the new testament. You can remain seated today. I'm just going to read us a passage of scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 22. This gives us an understanding of this time and what Christ did and how that he became the institution, or how he instituted, is the better way to say that, how he instituted the New Testament. It says, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come. So he took on the role of the Old Testament, the high priest. By a greater and more perfect tabernacle, what was the greater tabernacle? It was not the tabernacle of animal skins that was built in the wilderness, but it was the tabernacle of human flesh that God came to manifest himself in. He took on a better tabernacle. I'll say this again later, but we have become the temple of the Holy Ghost. Our flesh is where God now lives and resides inside of us. We are a better tabernacle than what was in the Old Testament. Not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered into once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The writer of Hebrews is drawing the parallel that God became flesh and he took his blood and shed it like the animal blood was shed, but he shed it as a more perfect sacrifice for us. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers sprinkling, sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge the conscience from dead works to serving the living God. The old covenant satisfied the flesh. The new covenant goes beyond the flesh. It satisfies the conscience. It cleanses the soul. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first tabernacle... They which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. 
If you know somebody that has a will and testament, and you decide you want to collect on your inheritance while they're still living, they're going to tell you no. And the judge in the probate court is going to tell you it's not in effect yet. It's just a written document that has a future implementation date. So death must occur before the benefits or the inheritance or the disbursement can happen. Before the fullness of grace and mercy could be expounded to us, before the full expanse of God's love could be given to us, before the eternal forgiveness of our sins could be brought to us, Christ had to die. Verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, do you remember the dedication of the first testament? They killed the animal and they went and they took the blood and they put it on the horns of all the different altars and they put blood on the right earlobe of the priest and the right thumb and the right big toe of the priest. There was blood involved in the first dedication. 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet thread and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and the people saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So while he sprinkled blood in the beginning, Christ died and shed his blood for us for the New Testament to come into effect. We apply that blood in our lives through baptism. The blood of Jesus Christ is applied to our lives. Thankfully, we do not have the burden of the rituals of the Old Testament. Anybody here raising bullocks, little bulls to bring to church next Sunday? First Sunday, sacrifice Sunday, everybody... Everybody bring your goat, sheep, bullock, or turtle dove. We'll meet out back, and we'll have a slaughter, and we'll build an altar. You want to talk about a mess. The beginning process of sacrifice is gross, it's messy, it smells. It's horrific. But the end process of sacrifice is beautiful. It's summertime. You can walk through your neighborhood and smell people preparing their dinners on the grill. The, the killing of the animal and the shedding of its blood and the the cutting of the animal as prescribed by scripture was a mess. But when that animal was placed on that brazen altar and it began to roast and cook and eventually burn up. If you're a vegetarian, you probably don't think it smelled so great. But all the carnivores would are standing around the camp going, man, they're making sacrifice right now. And then they would take the blood from that 
death and they would take it inside to the holy place and they would place it on the altar of incense. And they would take fire from the brazen altar. And they'd place that fire on the altar of incense and that fire would then cause the sweet savor of the incense to burn and it would fill the sanctuary or the holy place. Again, another sweet and savory incense before God. It represents our praise. I'm thankful we don't have to do that. <laughs> the fire on the altar of incense was to never go out. I mean, someone had to always be watching. Anybody want to sign up for Tuesday night at 3 o'clock in the morning to swing by and check the fire? <laughs> Terry's like, I'm up, I'm working, I'll swing by. No, but we don't, have to, we don't have to do all of that anymore because Christ has not done away with the law, but he's fulfilled the law. He's completed the law for us. We don't have to come together on once a year and put all of our hope and trust that a priest completes the sacrifice perfectly as God prescribed and hope that he has his own life in order so that he can then take our needs and problems and sins before God into the holy place and then hope that God receives the sacrifice that he makes so that our sins can simply be atoned for another year. The burden and the weight of our sin is temporarily lifted. The guilt and shame of, of sin was momentarily relieved. But as the next day of atonement got closer, oh, we got to do it again. We go through the whole process again. So all of my past sins and all of my new sins can be bundled up, put under the blood, and rolled ahead again. I want to tell you, when we are obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we just simply come to an altar of repentance, an altar of forgiveness, and we just go to God and we bow our knee and we say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be king of my life. I want you to be ruler of my life. And I will walk away from the darkness of my past. And I will begin to walk towards the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you shine into my life. And because of Calvary, we just simply have to surrender and die out in repentance. Anybody can freely enter into the presence of God. We don't have to listen for the bells and the pomegranates on the bottom hymn of the priest's garment when he goes into the temple to, to make sure that God receives him. You at any moment can cry out to Jesus Christ and he is there. He is as close as the mention of his name. He, has, he is as near as you just reaching out and touching him. He is always with us. He promised to never leave us and to never forsake us. We are now able to live knowing that our sins have been remitted. What is remission? Remission is when something is removed. It's a medical term, right? Remission. Cancer has gone into remission or this disease has gone into remission. Your test results are as though you had never had it before. 
That's your mission. Everybody knew what their sin had been in the Old Testament. And they knew the day was coming when their sin was going to be held against them again. And they were waiting for the sacrifice to roll it forward. But something beautiful happens when the blood of Jesus Christ is applied. When you've repented of your sins and then you go into the watery grave of baptism. Just like Christ was buried in the tomb, so are we buried in water. The blood of Jesus Christ is being applied to our life and our sins are completely remitted. That's what Acts 2.38 tells us. For the remission of sin, we are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It is as though we had never sinned before. When you come out of the waters of baptism, you have a clean conscience before God. Greater than any moment that you recognize in your life. This is why baptism is so powerful to us. It is the remission of our sins. <clears throat> We've described a little bit today between Old Testament and New Testament the principles, the concepts, the ideas there. Let's, let's dig in just a bit more. Maybe I could ask this question to us this morning. Do we serve God with an Old Testament mindset? Do we serve God thinking from the perception or the perspective, is the better word, the perspective of our flesh? Or do we live for God from the perspective of His Spirit? Thinking from our flesh, people would say, well, I've done this in my life and God didn't bring immediate judgment on me. I was disobedient to God in this area of my life and if God really cared, why didn't He strike me down with lightning? I've heard people say that. I've heard people say, well, if it really mattered to God, how come he didn't bring judgment on me? Well, that's kind of like some people in the Old Testament. You're looking at it from a fleshly perspective. You're expecting God to hit you over the, stick, over the head with a big stick, and that's not where we live. Korah brought up a rebellion against Moses. When he started, God could have just wiped him out, but he didn't. God waited. And when the rebellion grew... God just opened up the earth and consumed them all. Judgment came. Miriam, Moses' sister, she got crossways with the man of God in her life, began to talk bad about him, went around behind his back. The Bible says she got leprosy. It didn't happen the first time she spoke against the man of God. But in time, judgment came. Jonah Jonah thought he had it all figured out. He bought a ticket going the other way. Bright blue sky. Nice calm sea. Nineveh. I can see standing at the ticket booth. Nineveh. This way. Joppa. This way. Uh, Joppa. He gets on board the ship. Not a cloud in the sky. Barely a ripple in the sea. They begin to sail. 
The wind picks up a little bit. Oh, stand on the back of the boat. Nice breeze. Nice, beautiful day out sailing. Joppa's going to be great. In just a moment, the wind turns into a fierce blowing. The clouds roll in. The thunder begins to crash. The waves begin to billow. Water begins to come into the boat. And everybody on board is beginning to panic. The chaos is ensuing. And the captain gets so desperate that they're starting to throw stuff overboard. And then he cries out in the last hope of desperation, If anybody here believes in a God, pray to him. Jonah knows. It was me. If you'll throw me overboard, everybody else can live. Judgment eventually comes. To live for God or to say we're living for God. Can I just be clear today? To say we live for God, but to do it from a fleshly perspective says, well, I've been able to, to squeeze my will in from my fleshly perspective, and God's not done anything about it, so he must be okay. God actually has a pretty strong standard in the new covenant. God's standard in the, in the new covenant is, he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. That's tough. Because there's a lot of stuff I know I'm not supposed to do. There's a lot of stuff we know we're not supposed to do. And so we have to rely on God and his strength to help us. No wonder Paul said he died daily. No wonder we're admonished in our walk with Christ to, to not live from a fleshly perspective and self-justify ourselves. But we must find ourselves daily and oftentimes, maybe multiple times a day. Lord, forgive me. Lord, let your grace be fresh and new in my heart again. Lord, I know what I was supposed to have done in that situation. I messed up, but I'm thankful for your mercy. Only time religion is required from an Old Testament mindset is when you're at the temple. Do you know they killed, killed each other in the Old Testament? They had justifiable murders in the Old Testament. Wow. They had other things that they did and lived and, and their moral code was given to them by God and he held them to a high standard, but there was always a plan or a way or a, an opportunity around it. The Old Testament. The Old Testament said, don't commit adultery. Don't engage in the act of adultery. And if they were to engage in adultery, they could get papers of divorce from Moses. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we shouldn't even look on a woman and think. The Bible holds us to a higher standard in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, the only time they would practice their religion was at the tabernacle. Now they were God-fearing folks, if we could say it that way. They had their Jewish traditions and their Jewish customs that they followed, but... Serving God only happened at the tabernacle. This is living for God from a fleshly perspective. 
if the only time we serve God is at the tabernacle, then the New Testament gives us a pretty strong indication that we should serve God at all times. Because we have become the tabernacle. We have become the temple in which He dwells. The building. We have become the sanctuary of God. We have become the haven of God. We have become the meeting place with God. Well, you may be asking your question, then why are we here this morning? Because this is corporate worship. This is a corporate gathering. We are here to encourage one another to better serve God, to learn how we can better serve God, and to share the good news of what God has done in our lives. This is a gathering of people together so that we can corporately, in unity, serve God in this moment. But we serve God more than just coming to a building we call a church. We serve God every day because we are the church. The old fleshly mentality says, if I'll just do my rituals and I'll just follow my traditions, then God won't condemn me. I think we should honor tradition. I think what our forefathers and pioneers of Pentecost, and not just Pentecost, but pioneers who have fought the fight for Christianity as a whole, we should honor them. We should honor their traditions. Prayer has been a tenet of Christianity since God took them to the garden and said, can you stay up with me for just an hour? Prayers never stopped being a part of following Christ. He taught them that the miraculous, the delivering of the demoniacs came through prayer and fasting. Fasting is a part of being a Christian. Jesus called all those that were to be his disciples to lay down what they were doing and to come and follow him. And it is what Christ calls us to do, to come and follow him. So it's more than just fulfilling traditional Rituals and religious obligations, but it is falling in love with him and serving him. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 tells us, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of our God, our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We build ourselves up. This is Old Testament living through the flesh, self-justifying ourselves. We, we build ourselves up so that we look right when we go to a temple or a place of worship on Sundays. But when we leave... The doors. Are we still living for God the same Monday through Saturday? 
I feel like the Lord is challenging us today a little bit that we have to leave the old life and grab a hold of the new life. Living for God is like planting a plant or a tree. There are some species of trees that when you plant them, you put them in a certain size pot or container or vessel and it will grow to a certain height and the roots will go out until they get bound up and then the tree will quit growing or the plant will quit growing because that's all the root system it can build. So you can control how big the tree is by the size of the pot that you planted in. And if you want that tree to continue to grow, you have to transplant it. You have to move it from the smaller pot to a larger planter and give the roots more room to grow. I wonder sometimes if we don't hold our Christian lives in the pot that is comfortable in our lives. And we allow Christ to grow in us to the level of which, which we can control it. And he's challenging us today to say, hey, transplant me. Move me out of the pot of your comfort zone. Move me out of the vessel that you can control and, and place me in a, in a bigger vessel in your life. Let me become a bigger part of your life so that the roots of your Christianity can grow deeper and bigger and wider. And the tree will grow taller and begin to produce fruit. Oftentimes, churches, seminaries, nonprofit organizations look for leaders to help them grow. And so they'll call in a leader or they'll hire a leader or they'll elect a pastor to come in and help that church grow. And that often involves change. A story is told of a pastor who had been elected to a church. It come to a point where he had to call together all the elders of the church. He brought them to a meeting and he sat down and he shared with them a very daunting dose of reality. He showed them that at the rate that they were losing members and hemorrhaging money, that it was very easy for him to predict that not too soon down the road they would have to close the doors of their church. The pastor reminded them, now you guys called me and you guys elected me for the single purpose of turning this church around to bring new families in and I am excited about the opportunity because the demographics of our community work in our favor. We can do this, but you called me to make change. Convinced by the urgency of the presentation and seeing that they were, they were convicted, the pastor asked these elders, to be very clear and, and vocal in their support. And they all somewhat timidly assured them that, yes, we are with you, even though it involves change. The meeting was dismissed, and one elder stayed behind. And as the others were gone, the softly spoke up and said, Pastor, I, I want you to know that all of us want change, but we've been talking, and we're just wondering... Is there any way that you can delay the change until some of us die? 
This is our church, and we know if it doesn't change, it'll eventually die, but we like it the way it is. Can we just delay the change until some of us pass on? I wonder sometimes if we don't live for God the same way. I've had to challenge myself, Lord, am I delaying inevitable change for me to grow closer to you because I'm comfortable where I am? Lord, do I really have to commit to that now? Lord, do I really have to consecrate that area of my life to you now? Can I do it next week? Lord, how about I get some other things in my life organized and put together first, and, and then I'll consecrate those things to you. No, God is challenging us. God is calling us to take on the new, to take on the new identity, because change brings to us an opportunity of greatness, and we have to be willing to let go of the good in order to grab the great. My pastor make a statement, oftentimes makes a statement, it resonates, it rings so well and fits so appropriately today. In order to move up, you got to let go. The only way you can ever get to the next rung on a ladder is to let go. Not forever. If you just let go and never grab back a hold, you're going to fall off. The intent is not to free fall. The intent is to let go and re-grab a hold in a new place. To re-grab a hold in a place of growth, in a place of advancement, in a place of moving forward. Romans 12 and 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Jesus did not come to remove sacrifice from our lives. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament sacrifice and institute a new sacrifice for us. So rather than having an annual sacrifice, we have a perpetual sacrifice. Rather than having a sacrifice that we have to all come together once in a calendar year to do, we all now live every day, all the time, in a state of sacrifice to God. We strive to live this way for the kingdom. We strive to live this way with our mindset. Lord, whatever you need from me, I'll give it. Lord, whatever you've blessed me with, I'll just be a good steward of it and turn it back to you. Mother, my time. Lord, if you've blessed me with time, I'm going to turn around and give it back to you. Lord, if you've blessed me with talent, I'm going to use that talent for the kingdom of God. I'm going to turn it around and give it back to you. God, if you've blessed me with resources, I'm going to turn those resources around and use them for the kingdom of God. We live a living sacrifice. Lord's challenging us today to say, Lord, I'm going to move beyond comfortable Christianity. And I'm going to be able to live as Christ calls me to live. 
We have to leave the things of religion behind us and begin to follow the true will of God for our lives. Pentecostals, and I'll speak to us today. Pentecostals have been known at times to point out all the religious rituals of all the different religions in the world. Do you know we got our own? We've got our own. Sometimes we only fast when the church fasts. Really, the Bible doesn't teach us that the pastor has to call a fast. It just says to fast. Sometimes we only pray when there's a prayer meeting and everybody gathers together to pray and the only prayer requests we ever pray for are the ones that everybody mentions and we talk about. But prayer isn't really defined in Scripture as a meeting where everybody gets together and shares their needs. We do that for prayer. We'll keep doing that for prayer. But really the the real calling for prayer is that it's how we build our relationship with God. It's that one-on-one friendship conversation between us and God. We should always be praying. So it is a living sacrifice. It is more than just fulfilling religious obligations or religious rituals. It becomes a lifestyle that we live. We should not become conformed to the status quo of a religious world. Rather, we should fill the vacant shoes of the New Testament church. This is where I want to drive us home today. Trenton, you can come. I'm getting close to finished. The old story goes, you read the book of Acts, or if you read many of the books of the Bible first, you notice that they end with the word amen. But if you read the book of Acts, it just stops. Because the church didn't end. The followers of Jesus Christ didn't disappear. There's not an end to his church yet. The church continues on. The ecclesia, the born again, the called out, continues on until Christ comes and calls us away to be with him. So everything we read in the book of Acts ought to be continuing. And the things that are happening, the prayer for the sick and they recovery, recover. The miraculous healings, the divine provision, the anointing and sending out of people to do the work of ministry. All of these things should be continuing in the church today. And when I look around, I don't always see all of those things happening. And I feel challenged in my spirit. I feel challenged in my heart to move forward and to do what God is calling us to do and to be. We should fill the vacated shoes of the New Testament church. They ran their race. They finished their course. They were strong all the way to the end, even in doing, enduring extreme persecution. There's an empty set of shoes for Peter. Who's going to put on Peter's shoes? There's an empty set of shoes for James, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Who's going to put on 
with his shoes. There's an empty pair of shoes of Paul, the great missionary, who went through all the corners of the known world to share the gospel. Who's going to put on his shoes? And not just these apostles, but those who were in the early church. Who's going to put on the shoes of Titus? Who's going to put on the shoes of Timothy? Who's going to put on the shoes of Bartholomew? Who's going to put on the shoes of John Mark? Who's going to put on the shoes of Timothy's mother and grandmother? Who's going to put on the shoes of Lydia? These are all people from the New Testament who didn't falter in their walk with God, but they were willing to push forward. They were not conformed to the religious world, but as Romans 12 tells us, they were transformed by the renewing of their mind. Lord, transform our mind. Lord, transform our heart. Let us move from living according to our flesh for you. And let us become hungry for your spirit. Let us become hungry to be led by your spirit. Let us be hungry to be obedient to the call of your spirit. Deuteronomy 8 tells us that thou shalt remember the way of the Lord thy God who led thee 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what is thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or not. Can I be honest with you today? I have no desire to wander around the wilderness. I've been in wildernesses. I've wandered through wildernesses. Let me tell you, the easiest way to get out of a wilderness experience in your walk with God Humble yourself before God and say, all right, Lord, whatever you want to do with me, however you want to use me for the kingdom, Lord, I surrender to you. I surrender to your purpose. I surrender to your plan. 2 Corinthians 4, and, or excuse me, 7 and 14 tells us, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. He didn't say when the sinner begins to pray. He didn't say when the religious begin to pray. He didn't say when the wealthy begin to pray. He didn't say when the pulpers begin to pray. He didn't say what any other people group would pray other than those who are called by His name. I would declare to you today, those called by His name are those who have been buried in the waters of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. They have His name applied to them. Those who are called by His name are the disciples who live like the early church in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. They were like Christ. Their lives resembled the life of Christ. These are the people who should humble themselves and pray and seek God's face. These are the ones that God says should turn from their wicked ways. And then He will hear from heaven. He will forgive sin and He will heal their land. Let me tell you how the greatest revival that's ever happened in America is going to come. 
the greatest revival ever to be in the state of Missouri, the city of Springfield, or Life Spring Church. It will come when God's people pray and God's people seek His face and God's people turn from their wicked ways. Then God will hear from heaven. Then God will forgive our sin and God will heal our land. We can't live for God in comfort. We can't live for God from the perspective of our flesh. But God, let me see what you've called me to be through your spirit. Do you desire to see signs, wonders, and miracles? To be honest, I don't know what I would do if it was like Peter. You read the book of Acts, the Bible says the people had so much faith in the God of the apostles that they would bring sick people out and lay them along the sides of the road. And Peter didn't do anything but just travel from point A to point B. And as his shadow passed over them, they were healed. What would you do if you was walking down the road and some lame person just automatically stood up because your shadow went over them? talk about rubbernecking what happened there oh your shadow went over him. I don't think we'd really I really don't think we'd be surprised we'd be in that tight relationship with God we would be doing what God has called us to do we would be living what God has called us to live so we must grab a hold of the new we must pursue being everything that Christ died for us to be. God didn't die for us to be Sunday Christians. God didn't die for us to simply become religious folks. God died for us so that we would become disciples of Jesus Christ. He died for us that we would have life and life abundantly. He died for us that we would have a new hope in Him. said that he would give us the earnest of our inheritance. He died so that we could be filled with his spirit. Just as the early church was endued with power, I believe God wants to do the same thing for the last day church. Just like the day of Pentecost, when they were in one place and in one accord, and you can stand with me. The Bible says they were all gathered together. Jesus had already talked to them. Jesus had already taught them. He has already spoken to them his last words on the Mount of Olives. You shall be endued with power from on high. You shall become my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. That was his commission. That was his commandment. His commission was to go and baptize. Teach and baptize. That was his commission. He taught that we should teach his word. That we must believe and be baptized. So, 
They're wondering how they're going to do it. Jesus says, you're going to be endued with power from on high. Go tarry in Jerusalem. He didn't tell them to go have a business meeting. He didn't tell them to go elect a, a, a new apostle to fill Judas's vacated spot. He didn't tell them to go build an organization. Are you with me this morning? He didn't tell them to go feed the hungry. He didn't tell them to go start a nonprofit. He said, go wait until you're endued with power from on high. I'm challenging us today as Livestream Church. There are things we do as followers of Christ. We will feed the hungry. We will help those that are down and out. We will help help those that have addiction find recovery. We will do the work of ministry. But we can't do any of it unless we've been endued with power. We can't do any of it unless His Spirit is upon us and flowing in us and through us. So I call to you today. Are you willing to move from a place of comfort living for God? To move into a place where God stretches you a little bit. Where God pulls you a little bit. Where God says, hey, I want to take you out of a small planter and place you in a bigger planter and let your roots begin to expand a little bit more this morning. Thank you for listening to the LifeSpring Church Podcast. Join us in person on Sundays at 11 a.m. Visit us online at lifespringchurch.us.